along to the Brain for Business, Brain for Life podcast with me, Lawrence Nell, where we take the lessons from evidence-based academic research, most particularly involving the brain and behavioral sciences, and translate them in a way that is accessible for leaders and organizations. I'm delighted to welcome you to this, our first anniversary special edition. Little do we know, when we kicked off Brain for Business, Brain for Life 12 months ago, how the year would turn out. So much has happened, and yet so much of our normal everyday lives has been prevented from happening by COVID-19 and all the associated restrictions. To reflect on the past year and everything that's happened, particularly in the world of the brain and behavioral sciences, I'm delighted to be rejoined by Professor of Experimental Brain Research at the Trinity Institute of Neurosciences in Dublin, Professor Shane O'Mara. Shane, welcome back. It's great to be speaking to you again. Thanks, Larry. I'm looking forward to it. Well, tell me, when it comes to the brain and behavioural sciences, what, if anything, have we learned over the last year? Oh, that, that's such a big question that it's actually uh, a little bit difficult to know where to start. Uh, you know, let, let's start with the, the brain for a moment. Um, I think, uh, you know, there's a, a lot of evidence, for example, now regarding just the danger of uh, COVID as a disease uh, in terms of how it attacks the brain and uh, the, the kind of terrible uh, consequences in terms of brain fog uh, that people have, have suffered, you know. So that, that I think, is one major uh, lesson. Kind of focusing a bit more on behaviour, I think, you know, we've learned good things and bad things. Um, I think we have learned that the behavioural sciences can be our best friend and uh, can also be very problematic uh, because we have a sense of what buttons might be the right ones to push where uh, changing behaviour for public health purposes is concerned. But uh, we've also seen that uh, people are prone to contagion by misinformation and uh, all of those kinds of things over the, the, the past year as well. So uh, there's kind of a, a, an ambiguous answer there, I'm afraid. That's absolutely fine. I think, you know, in the real world, there never are these clear-cut answers. But you mentioned there some of the, the buttons that, um, that perhaps work in a, in a behavioral sense. The, the, the one that comes to mind, this theory that had been floating around for a number of years was the idea of nudge. Has, has, have nudge theories been tested at all in the last uh, 12 months? And if so, how have they played out? I, I'm not aware, to be honest, of any uh, large-scale attempts to, to, to use nudge theory uh, I think, you know, the, the, the problem that we have is that nudges are designed for behavior under normal circumstances where, you know, the consequences of the behavior are, are not so terribly enormous, you know. So as the, the jargon goes, uh, what you're trying to do is to nudge people to choose uh, healthy options while eating over unhealthy options or uh, those kinds of things. Whereas the, the changes in behavior that we've asked people to engage in are really ones that uh, go against the grain of what it is to be human. You know, we're asking people uh, to be socially distanced from each other, even though humans are a hyper-social species. So this is a, a terribly stressful thing to do. So rather than nudging, I think people are being actively pushed. Um, and we know that this is for our own good, but I, I think nudge uh, might be something that will have a, a role post-pandemic. You know, so I'm thinking in terms of things like hand washing behaviors, uh, those kinds of things, uh, the normalization of mask wearing during the flu season, 
Um, th those kinds of things I think we can do quite a bit with, but I think we're not at a point yet where uh, we could do anything useful in the in the context of the current pandemic. And from that, is there anything that you've noticed in, in terms of the application of behavioural ideas and, and science, if you will, that has surprised you? Anything that's that's really sort of jumped out as being a new or, or novel approach that you wouldn't have predicted? Um, no, I'm afraid not. I think, um, you know, the, the, the kind of... Uh, Obvious things continue to be, and truisms continue to be the things that we need to do. There needs to be clear lines of communication. There needs to be an acknowledgement of the, the limits of the evidence. Uh, we need to get people used to things like probabilistic thinking, uh, you know, where you're thinking about dual or more risks. What is the risk of doing X versus the risk of not doing X versus the risks of doing Y? Um, I think we could do better in terms of translating those messages. You know, a lot of people are into uh, uh, betting uh, and intuitively understand what odds mean when you're you're laying money. I think, uh, you know, some of that language might be adopted at least to reach certain groups. Uh, you know, so there are those kinds of things. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, that, I, I think that's probably the kind of place that I would be coming from. You mentioned as well there that we are, as a species, humans as a species, are hypersocial. Is there any emerging evidence of, of the impact of, of all of this sort of isolation on us as as, as humans and, and as a species? Is anything emerging there at all? Yeah, so there, there's uh, evidence here in Ireland that Pete Lunn at the ESRI has been collecting. Uh, there's evidence in the UK, Steve Reicher and colleagues have been collecting um, on mental well-being and, and those kinds of issues. Um, now, we're not truly isolated from each other generally. Most people are, are isolating with somebody else. Um, so we're not disconnected in that sense. And we're, we're not truly isolated in the sense that we can't interact with other people. We just have to do it at a distance with a mask, which makes life a little more unpleasant and a little more uncomfortable. Um, and in, in the Reicher uh, studies, for example, what they've shown is um, there's been an enhancement of mental well-being in a certain fraction of uh, the UK population. Um, there's been very little change for most people and there's been a diminution for some. Um, so the, the, the predictability of, of isolation in terms of individual response is actually not something that's uniform. It's, it's moderated terribly by things like your uh, housing conditions, your socioeconomic status, uh, your ability to connect with others through the internet and, and other kinds of things like that. So it's not exactly the same as being put in uh, in, in isolation in, in jail, as, as some memes on the internet would suggest. No, no, of course it isn't. And, uh, you know, that kind of way of looking at things is, is quite clearly and obviously untrue. You know, even in, in the countries that had very, very severe lockdowns, um, you know, where you were uh, uh, placed in your apartment and you weren't allowed to leave, uh, we saw many examples of people talking across balconies and, and things like this. Uh, you know, so connection is possible. Um, having said that, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to diminish the fact that uh, uh, isolation, particularly for people who, who uh, 
psychologically uh, are of the type that need lots of human contact has been very difficult. Um, on the other hand, uh, and again, this is not to diminish what people uh, have, have suffered, humans are terribly resilient. We have come through as a species much, much worse uh, things in the past. You know, within living memory, uh, three quarters of the, the built environment in Germany was was uh, demolished uh, as the result of bombing. Um, and Germany has, has come back in the course of 20 years to be a, a remarkably powerful country again uh, in the 20 years after the Second World War. Um, the country that we're doing this recording from, of course, suffered uh, one of uh, mankind's great catastrophes in the 1840s when uh, two million people uh, either died or had to leave the country within a three-year period because of starvation. And yet the country came back from that. So humans do have this astonishing capacity to recover from trauma. Um, and it may well be the case that the long-term effects of isolation are much more muted than we feel they might be when we're in the moment with them. And in terms of that, I know you mentioned a couple of examples there from Ireland and Germany, but do we have any records of how the the, the behavioural impact of previous pandemics has played out, whether we're talking about the 1918 flu or, or the plague several hundred years ago? Do we have any evidence of that? And, and what, if so, what, what might that tell yeah, us? Yeah, so that, that, that's a great question and one that I, I can't give a fully comprehensive answer to. Uh, so I, I'll give a, a part answer and then I'll divert the question uh, just a little. Um, you know, so we, we know in the case of Ireland that after the famine, there was a, a great silence. Uh, people didn't speak of it. Um, and it was kind of thrown into the collective memory hole. Um, and, it, it, you know, it took a very long time for uh, people to come to terms. I don't even know that we have properly ever come to terms with the the size and scale of the suffering because so much of it was oral and uh, it happened over such a, a short period of time. And I, I think, you know, the, the last great worldwide pandemic was the uh, the pandemic of 1918 to 1920 uh, or 21. And uh, I, I've been reading some of the writing of uh, Zainab uh, Tufeki, the uh, epidemiological sociologist on this, and uh, she and others uh, are repeatedly amazed at the extent to which uh, we just decided collectively as a species to forget that uh, event, even though uh, it was the case that a, a staggering number of people died, uh, a similar number to the number as died in uh, the uh, war that had immediately preceded uh, the uh, uh, pandemic, you know, so we went on to have the Roaring Twenties and things like this. There's a, a, a kind of a peculiar phenomenon, I think, where uh, collective memory is concerned and one that we don't really have a good grasp on, which is this idea of, you know, socially agreed forgetting. Uh, we just decide not to speak of this. Uh, and maybe that's a better way to cope with things. I don't know. Maybe collectively that's the way to cope, but for some individuals it isn't. Um, but it is one of those things that uh, uh, we, we don't really have a good handle on in terms of understanding the, the psychological dynamics. It's interesting as you're talking, it reminds me of when I was in my 20s, I spent a good bit of time with different communities who had left Europe after the Second World War and their, their countries had been invaded and, and destroyed during the Second World War. 
And there were, there were two different dynamics going on. On the one hand, there was this need to come together as a community, to speak the language, to be together, to, to engage with the folk culture. But in parallel, there was this genuine need not to talk about certain things. So the people who had been literally at the front line of a war or who had been in concentration camps, they didn't talk about it. And you knew that the ones who weren't talking about it were the ones who'd been there. The ones who were talking about it actually were, were just retelling other people's tales. Is it perhaps that kind of dynamic? Uh, there could well be. You know, there's this human thing of just having to get on with things. Um, you know, he, uh, going back and revisiting uh, the past is, is really not an adaptive path to the future if you've suffered terrible trauma. Uh, it, at least in certain respects, you know, you, you need to resolve it in some way, but certain kinds of trauma, there's nothing you can do about. Um, you, know, you just have to somehow uh, uh, get on with things. I, and this is what I was going to divert you to. You know, if we think of the kinds of things that people uh, suffer in their lives, um, you know, many of the, the kinds of things are the death of a spouse, uh, divorce, unemployment, uh, all of those kinds of things. And we have a, a, quite a bit of longitudinal data uh, collected by, uh, for example, Ed Diener uh, at the University of Chicago and, and other people uh, who've tracked individuals before and after uh, significant life events and looked at, at their kind of how happy or otherwise uh, they happen to be. So, if, you know, if, Counterintuitively, perhaps, you know, uh, people are happier five years after a divorce. So after the breakup of a marriage, um, maybe that's not so surprising. Um, uh, you know, you've left a, a terrible thing behind. And this is true for both uh, males and females uh, in his sample. But uh, he, he also shows, for example, in the, in the case of uh, unemployment or in the case of layoffs, uh, where people have lost their jobs, that... Uh, uh, a couple of years post layoff, people's uh, feeling of well-being is back to where it was uh, prior uh, to layoff. Um, and actually one that I think uh, shouldn't come or maybe does come as a surprise to parents everywhere. The birth of a child, uh, people experience an increase in well-being beforehand. And then in, for a year or two afterwards, everybody's well-being drops and it takes a, a year or two to get back up to where you were prior uh, to the birth of a child, because of course the life stress that comes with a new child is is uh, is, is enormous, and um, you know humans are good uh, at uh, adapting to circumstance, um, and uh, uh, are able to to uh, in some sense they they can see a positive future forward. And I, I have a I have a thought that this has to do with a kink in how our memories are constructed. Um, so there's a, a well-known phenomenon in memory known as the rosary retrospection bias. Uh, and this is the phenomenon where if you ask people of any age to look back over their lives and recall significant life events um, and things like this, what people predominantly do is recall good stuff. Uh, they don't do this when recalling good stuff or when they're asked to recall what has happened in the life of their nation. There's no such uh, retrospect, rosy retrospective bias, but there is persistently uh, across every individual surveyed um, this bias in favour of, of recalling good stuff. Um, and uh, there's data suggesting that actually the, the preponderance of positive memories uh, that you're able to summon up despite adversity uh, actually uh, 
influences dramatically how you will feel about your own future prospects. Uh, so if you, if you have a lot of rosy retrospection, you think your own future life will be a happier life uh, as well. That's that's really odd. You mentioned children there, and and I I don't know if if, if you know, but are there any insights into what the impact of all of this has been and and, and will be on children? So I'm thinking, you know, if you've got a, a ten year old child and they've spent the last year, pretty much the last year, in some kind of isolation, let's say ten percent of their life, do do we have any insights at this point on the potential impact? Uh, no, that's actually a great question. Uh, I actually, and I'm glad you asked it. I, my worry is not so much for adults uh, where this is concerned. I think we, we will see adults who will exhibit uh, degree of, uh, degrees of adjustment difficulty and, and things like that. Um, but I think, in a, you know, we've never had a phenomenon like this in society before where children have been affected so badly. Uh, or, you know, so greatly, let's not say it negatively. What we do know is, uh, you know, there's a number of US studies now, for example, have, have quantified the uh, loss of schooling. Um, children are substantially behind in the curriculum compared to where they should be. And they've also missed out on really important day-to-day -day social interaction with others where they learn to get along or not so much to get along, but to defend themselves against other children. Um, and this is something that's very important as, a, as an experience when you're growing up. Um, so I, I think children need to be a much greater focus uh, than they have been uh, through this. And we, we are really going to have to be sensitive as a society to the idea that actually children are, are, have suffered much more than, than uh, we think they might have done, or at least some children have. Um, and uh, certainly there's going to be impacts on, on schooling. And those impacts, uh, according to the US data that I'm aware of, are much worse in children who are from poorer families. Uh, you sh and this shouldn't be a surprise, but it means that, you know, 20 years out, um, there's going to be a relative advantage to those who have been wealthy going into this, relatively wealthy going into this pandemic. And, and even just in, in my own experience, just seeing how some schools have uh, been able to adapt to supporting, say, online distance learning for, for even quite young children, and others simply haven't. You can see that that kind of bias coming through in, in, in terms of social provision. Uh, and I guess it's it's probably going beyond a lot of the more obvious factors in terms of education, but then also into some of those deeper um, aspects of trauma that may only come through in many years' time. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, this is, a, I, I think, a genuine issue. You know, we, we are clearly seeing, even within uh, this country, great variation uh, in terms of, of how schools have been able to respond. Um, you know, some schools have, have super broadband and uh, they've got a, a wealthy or a, a high SES uh, demographic that... Uh, comprise their student population and other schools don't um, and the preparedness of teachers of course varies some teachers are astonishingly adept at uh, uh, online living and online uh, work but others aren't uh, and there's probably an issue that is is worth reflecting on as well there's a, a, a an educational psychologist named paul harris 
uh, at Harvard University, whose work is, is very, very interesting uh, on the issue of learning. Um, and he's opposed very much to the view that children discover things and we should uh, put them and uh, make them into kind of junior scientists who discover new truths about numbers and all of the rest of it. Um, and he points out, not unreasonably, that adults don't behave like that. We just ask each other stuff um, and we trust in what we're told uh, and we stop trusting in what we're told if we've been misled. And uh, he's been doing a long series of, of, of experiments and uh, data collection and children showing uh, that actually kids do this too. <laughs> they ask each other stuff all the time. Um, and this is one of the reasons why uh, collaborative learning in classrooms works very well and individual learning at a screen doesn't work so well because kids, you know, will whisper to each other, I didn't hear what the teacher said. What did she, what did she say? What did he say? And one will correct the other. Um, and they do this all the time. And they haven't had that experience for a really very, very long time now. So, you know, that kind of error correction that kids do for each other and learning support that they do for each other has been absent. Um, and I think, you know, we've we've pretended to ourselves or we maybe we, we've had to pretend it in some senses that uh, online learning is a substitute. And of course it isn't. Um, kids, uh, no more than adults, you know, university students and others, uh, need social interaction as a support for learning. And this has been, again, something that's been in really remarkably absent over the past year. And how we recover from that, uh, I don't know. Maybe time will, will undo it. I hope it does. You mentioned time there. And one of the, the, the consequences of COVID has been this phenomenon of, of long COVID. What are the, the impacts of that? Is that something that has been explored at all? Yes, oh, it's something actually I've been interested in myself, uh, and other other groups have been have been working on on long COVID as well, um, and there, there there have been lots of of uh, uh, pieces of research now on the kind of long term consequences of COVID, and I, I think the first thing to say is that uh, long COVID uh, is very variable in terms of predicting who's going to suffer from it. Uh, it's it's really difficult to know ahead of time. Uh, who's most likely to suffer from it. I think one general conclusion is that people with pre-existing conditions are more likely uh, to suffer from long COVID than people who are healthy, but that's not uniformly the case. Um, the other uh, thing that seems apparent is that where the virus attacks uh, really has a, a big effect on uh, long COVID as well. So, you know, if, you, if you've experienced your uh, symptoms primarily as respiratory ones, it, it seems to me from my reading of the literature that uh, you're probably going to suffer kind of long-term respiratory uh, consequences. And uh, with a student, I've been doing a little bit of work on the area of, of whether or not brain fog occurs in, in uh, long COVID patients. Um, so we have done a piece of, now I have to be careful how I explain, uh, how I, uh, or what I claim for this, but we, what we've done is a, what we would call a piece of exploratory research. Um, we, where we got people online to complete uh, questionnaires and we got people to do kind of two different things. We got them to fill in questionnaires to do with, with their quality of life, uh, mental fatigue and depression. And we compared those to uh, a non-clinical population. And uh, we also got them to uh, provide a kind of a narrative on uh, 
what they had felt um, and uh, how they are feeling. And uh, basically, her, her bottom line is that uh, the, the COVID survivors, and these are people who would have been infected in the first wave from you know March, April through last summer, uh, and who would have filled in this questionnaire uh, towards the end of last year or, or the beginning of this year, had were significantly worse on measures of health-related quality of life, uh, much poorer. Uh, they're suffering much greater degrees of general mental fatigue, as opposed to physical fatigue, which they're also suffering from as well. So they're complaining of mental slowness um, and uh, those kinds of things that are, are rapid mental tiredness. Uh, you know, they, they, they can keep attention to a task for a short period of time. Things that they would have enjoyed previously, like reading or something like that, becomes very, very effortful. Uh, but they also suffer from a general physical fatigue um, they, they wear out more quickly and uh, uh, they also have uh, 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 higher scores on depression inventories compared to uh, the general population. Um, so the, you had all of those kinds of things. Now, we, we also looked at a few other things. We found that, for example, uh, smoking really had no effect um, on uh, outcomes or vaping, in fact. Uh, so... That, that really didn't matter. Age didn't matter either. It wasn't a significant moderating variable. So that tells you something really important. That, uh, uh, our sample was restricted from to the kind of 18 uh, plus population, so no children, um, but the, uh, and we got a good spread across the, uh, the population uh, in terms of the numbers. Um, and uh, people con are continuing to have uh, uh, enduring symptoms. And uh, one of the things that they, they uh, coming back to a team from early on in the conversation um, that they, they, they found difficult uh, was the continuing lockdown, um, you know, the, the, the kind of normalization of their lives, which they had hoped for, hadn't happened. And uh, uh, this is something that uh, they, they find continuing uh, to be a continuing uh, difficulty for them on top of the very, very significant issues that they've had from the uh, contracting the virus in the, in the first place. So really, really difficult uh, and ugly situation. Um, and I, I should actually just comment uh, again, coming back to the theme from earlier on, what I was getting at, of course, was people who hadn't contracted COVID. I think people uh, who have contracted COVID were going to have a, a significant uh, quality of life and healthcare burden for many of them for a considerable period of time to come. When you were talking through that research, and, and it is fascinating research, you mentioned a number of um, basic demographic factors. You, you didn't mention gender. Is there any variation in terms of long COVID across gender? Actually, I didn't mention gender, and I probably should have. Um, our sample was three quarters female and a quarter male. Um, so the, the response rate differed uh, quite dramatically, uh, but there was no gender breakdown once uh, beyond uh, the willingness to, uh, to report. We didn't find anything uh, especially uh, interesting on, the, on the, uh, the gender front. I think much the more significant issue is whether or not people had prior uh, symptoms. You know, if people were hypertensive um, or uh, if they had problems with prior uh, mental illness, for example, or, or, or at least prior mental health symptomatology like 
uh, depression, there was a likelihood that they, they would uh, uh, suffer uh, greater symptoms compared to people who uh, uh, did not. Well, Shane O'Mara, Professor Shane O'Mara of Trinity College Dublin, many thanks for your time and many thanks for your insights for our first anniversary edition. Thank you, Larry. That was uh, uh, challenging. <laughs> and dream sequence by Lorenzo's Music is licensed under an attribution share and share alike license.